Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am your lead moderator for today's group discussion. My name is Jehan Marku, and I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Nigam Aurora, founding partner at Marku and Aurora. Welcome back, Nigam. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. And joining us today for our first episode of Season 3 is Anna Simons, Program Manager at Etheridge and former Premier League rugby player. Welcome back, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And also joining us is Dr. Jackie Von Somme, co-founder and CSO of Silera. Hi. All right, listener, we have a great show for you today. We will be playing a game, testing your knowledge about the recent Cresco Labs and Columbia Care merger, followed by a discussion about the Pennsylvania vape recall. And we'll end with a discussion about psychedelic science and how people discuss it in online forums. But we'll be back after a short break with a game. And we're back. So today we're going to play a fun game. It's, it's a version of Three Truths and a Lie. And it's going to be about the Cresco Labs and Columbia Care announcement that they are entering into a definitive agreement. So Cresco Labs was a large company, Columbia Care, another large cannabis company. Together, they will have a very large company. And they are probably leaps and bounds ahead of other um, MSOs in the United States. The total number of brands under this merger will be more than 30, including the Green Solution, the, the Healing Center, Wellness Solution, Medicine Man, Tyson, Project Cannabis, and High Supply. As the great consolidation continues, I would like to challenge you guys today about which of the following is not true about this announcement, about this merger or this acquisition of Cresco Labs uh, of Columbia Care. So which of the following um, is not true about this merger or acquisition? Is it A, the deal was referred to as, quote, Project Jet by Cresco and had been in the work for around three months? Was it B, this gives Cresco Labs the largest pro forma revenue in cannabis today at over $1.4 billion? Is it three, this deal looks likely to create the third largest U.S. multi-state operator by market value. The top two will remain Cureleaf Holdings and Green Thumb Industry, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. Or four, they are slated to spend up to 1% of profits on clinical and safety research. So once again, is it A, uh, this deal, this merger between uh, or acquisition of, of Cresco Labs of Columbia Care was referred to as, quote, Project Jet. Uh, is it B, Cresco Labs? This gives Cresco Labs the largest pro forma revenue in cannabis today at $1.4 billion. Is it C, this deal looks likely to create the third largest multi-state operator by market value, with the top two probably remaining Cureleaf and Green Thumb Industries, according to data compiled by Bloomberg, or four, they are slated to spend up to 1% of profits on clinical and safety research. I see some interesting faces being made at this. I want it to be number four. 
Oh, man. Okay, so then let me restate. Uh, I hope that number four is not a lie. That sounds decent. So which one is the lie? Well, okay, how about this? So so Jackie, do you you know at Solera, do you guys have code names for projects? Do you ever like yeah, so it's not uncommon even for like clinical trials for you to give your clinical trials a project name or some kind of code name. Um, I don't know if I'd put the word project in it. So if there was my guess, I guess it would probably be A only because and maybe they did. I don't know. But I, I probably wouldn't actually put the word project in there. A lot of times yeah. it's just some fun word. It's, it's probably put. as idiotic as calling something project warp speed or something like that, right? <laughs> but the funny thing about number one or a is um to me the thing that stuck out too was that it was in the works for three months because i feel like these giant mergers take like a year or something <laughs> but hmm. i'm not sure i'm not sure that does seem short so so it seems like we're dancing around number one or number a which is you know the deal was referred to as project jet by cresco and had been in the works for around three months you know, the other one that this gives Cresco Labs the largest pro forma revenue at $1.4 billion. Three, this deal looks likely to create the third largest multi-state operator. Uh, or four, they're slated to spend 1% of profits on clinical and safety research. So we can talk about a couple factoids. Um, you know, they are uh, market share leaders in a lot of key states. You know, they independently, the companies have you know, really great positions in Illinois, Pennsylvania, Colorado, Virginia, as well as Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Florida. Basically, you know, any place that's extremely profitable potentially to sell cannabis, um, they, they are there. Um, they have a lot of exposure in adult use states. Um, they have, uh, you know, the top five edible brands, according to some people. Um, they're within that top five. So again, we're talking a lot of a lot of brands are, are being wrapped up. If I was to draw a flow chart, it would be nothing but logos um, filling the the page um, because they were again we're I think yeah I saw that was chart, circulating right yeah I think it's out there <laughs> yeah um, okay Trehan I'm gonna give it a, a try now per some discussion so I'm I'm gonna run them and and say if I think it's true or false so Project Jet that's kind of silly but. I'm going to say, yeah, sure. That's the, I, I, I think so. Uh, go on. Hmm. Largest pro for largest pro forma revenue. I'm going to say 1.4 billion. That's pretty good. Um, I've heard of a lot of companies, hundreds of millions. I haven't heard billion, um, annual pro forma. I'm going to say, yeah. This thing about the third largest, I'm trying to think who's going to be larger than these two combined. Um, so that's, I'm on the fence about that one. I want four to be true, so I'm just going to hope it's going to be true. So I'm going to, I'm going to put my chip on three is false. I think they're not third. I think they're probably second or first after the merger if it goes through. I, I really like the way you broke that down, Nigam. That, that, that's good. Um, and, you know, I think it's, uh, yeah, you know, maybe maybe their leadership knows what they're doing when they're naming projects. Like, and they had to keep it secret. It was moving quickly. It's a jet, like the private one they were on. Yeah, yeah, three yeah. months. It's a jet. Yeah. Sometimes right? I wonder yeah. if all this money will change. You know, these operators and 
I was discussing it with them in their private jet filled with liquid THC uh, in the hot tub. And, <laughs> you know, it didn't seem like the money really affected them. So um, anyway. <laughs> this is such a good lead in for uh, for the next topic, right? Yeah. All this talk about the money so, and the research. So, Anna, and, I see and blah, blah, you. Blah. I see I see various light bulbs going on and off there. Um, if you if you had to pick one, what would you feel is like just the outlier here? And in, 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 as as a colleague of mine says, in in the sea of normal, what what isn't what isn't normal here? Well, number four, like nobody does anything any clinical research that they don't have to do. Basically, <laughs> I mean, like you know what I mean. The the in the recreational market, the well, I'd love to see it, but then again up to 1% is a very small amount too. So if someone were going to, then they, then giving that tiny amount, I, although I guess if they're making 1.4 billion, then maybe it's not so tiny, but eh, I just, you just don't see that a lot, even at that very <laughs> miserly budget. Um, so <laughs> what that if I told you up. they were going to be donating all their pocket change at the end of the day to research? Would you believe that? Or is that no, just still too hard? <laughs> All right, so <laughs> so I think we know okay. Anna's vote. Well, oh I think gosh. you know for for U.S. companies, you know, I think that's a fair criticism. Um, you know, um, I think there are some international companies and companies, um, you know, in Canada and elsewhere, Europe that that kind of approach this a little bit differently. And um, yeah, so I think that's that's a good, you know. I, I would question it too. How about that? Um, as well as the name of the project. But so so far, uh, Nigam, you're saying number three or C. The uh, this is looks likely to create the third largest one. Anna, you're thinking um, number four is just too good to be true that a company might spend up to one percent um, of profits on some sort of clinical or safety research. Ouch. Um, <laughs> uh, so Jackie um, do you agree with Nigam or Anna are you going to are you going to pick a different factoid so again um, this Cresco Labs and Columbia Care merger is it A uh, the deal was referred to as Project Jet and had been in the work for around three months two this gives Cresco Labs the largest pro forma revenue in cannabis at 1.4 billion three or C, this deal looks likely to create the third largest U.S. multi-state operator by market value, or is it number four, they are slated to spend up to 1% of profits on clinical and safety research? I think I'm going to stick with the project one. I, uh, I, you know, I, I agree with, with Anna completely about the last one on the, the 1% profits that I don't, that I don't know that they would put it towards that, but I think I'm going to stick in, in Nigam's camp of just hoping that they actually have slated that amount to it. Um, but I, I don't know, as soon as uh, Anna really mentioned the three months thing, I, I don't know, that does seem pretty short. So I think I'm going to have to go with one or A. All right. We're split. We're divided. All right. <laughs> this is We're really totally fascinating. Divided, yeah. um, again, you know, it's not, I like to say this, it's not whether you win or lose the game, it's how you think through it. And I think um, without using the internet and, and Googling or internet browsing all this factoids, I, I love what I'm hearing. So let's start with the big reveal. So if you thought um, that it was B or number two, right? This gives Cresco Labs the largest pro revenue in cannabis today at over 1.4 billion. You thought that sounds about right. 
Well, it is. That is according to uh, documentation out there that this looks like to be um, their pro forma revenue. Now, again, that's uh, a gross, not net. We don't know. You know, maybe they're paying 90% in taxes in some of these states. Who knows how, <laughs> how much profits will really be there. But um, yeah, that is a sizable chunk. So now let's go on to uh, C or number three, seemingly uh, opposite number, right? This deal looks likely to create the third largest multi-state operator by market value. Um, the top two will probably remain Cure Leaf and Green Thumb Industries. Now, if you thought that this was uh, not maybe a, you know a little bit of a stretch, uh, how could they have a big pro forma? It'd still be like number third on the list. Well, this one surprisingly was actually um, calculated by Bloomberg uh, News, and so they went in there and they looked at this deal. And so, despite it, it's huge. Um, pro forma revenue, it's still, and the consolidation of these two companies, it still would place it about third in the um, United States MSO category. So that means that, um, you know, B and C, number two and three, are absolutely true. So, so let's, let's talk about naming things. And I'm a big syntax nomenclature guy. And if you thought, Project Jet was just a weird, silly name for something of this size and importance. Um, you were right. It is a little, seems a little silly, but it is actually true. This was indeed the documented name oh. of their project. And it actually went like a you know, conquered jet and was done in an amazingly a three months according to published documents. Which means that... There is no documentation at the time of this recording that they are going to spend any money on proving the claims of products or doing any safety research on products um, falling under their brands. There's no evidence of that. We could be wrong. Um, we definitely look forward to any angry emails we receive. But again, that means that, yes, someone has sniffed it out. So good job. Sorry to be right. I know. <laughs> Congratulations, Anna. Yeah. So pessimistic. I love my It's a classic cannabis industry pitfall. You let your hope get in the way, you know. So someday so. soon, I hope uh, you know, we'll we'll see more and more research, even if it's not required. Um, although it seems it seems odd that in this day and age there isn't like, why don't we give this to a hamster and see what happens first versus first line of research? The consumer walking in the door. Um, so, um, well, uh, congratulations to Cresco Labs and to Anna for the recent merger and winning this game. <laughs> we'll take a short back and be um, jumping into a popular literature discussion that will be the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show. So we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Danielle Schumacher, co-founder and CEO of THC Staffing Group, the first staffing firm to center diversity, equity, and inclusion in recruiting for the cannabis industry. You can reach us at thcstaffinggroup.com or on Instagram at thcstaffing. Shout out to Jehan Marku, a longtime colleague whom I respect very much. 
And we're back. Now it's time to peruse the non-peer-reviewed literature. We'll be discussing an article, um, actually a couple of articles, but the main one is from the Philadelphia Inquirer on medical cannabis recalls, specifically the vape recall in Pennsylvania. I call this story, no, you prove that it's unsafe. (laughs) All right. So earlier this year, hundreds of so-called vaporized medical cannabis products, these, these pens and cartridges sold at medical marijuana dispensaries in Pennsylvania have been recalled by the Department of Health because they contained ingredients that weren't approved for inhalation by the FDA and were also potentially unsafe because some of them were not even um, approved for oral uh, ingestion either. Uh, Basically, for years, the Pennsylvania Department of Health allowed the state's medical marijuana companies to sell hundreds of products that the agency now considers uh, potentially unsafe. But something changed um, last November when regulators started a process that led last month to a massive review, recall, and ban of 670 types of cannabis products for vaping, about $12 million worth. They, again, um, these were previously approved for sale in, in many, many dispensaries. So the program in Pennsylvania has more than 380,000 patients um, since about 2021, and Uh, Since the program got rolling in 2018, patients have spent about $2.4 billion on medical marijuana, which um, we'll discuss that in just a little bit. But again, this move has said to have blindsided patients and an industry dominated dominated by companies hyper-focused on what seemed to be broader legalization of cannabis. In fact, I spoke with a journalist who wrote the Inquirer article that's in the show notes. And he attended board meetings and financial meetings. And he told me that there are companies in Pennsylvania that do think of themselves as providing medicine, but he said the majority of them do not think that way. He actually was in a meeting, and this is hearsay, but this journalist told me that um, some comp- an industry association told their <laughs> investors um, not to spend money on clinical studies because it would undermine their business. So... Um, further frustrating uh, the industry in Pennsylvania, the regulators declined to explain the action of this recall beyond saying that the medicines contain added ingredients that have not been approved for inhalation by the FDA. And the list is available in the show notes um, of the products, ingredients that were uh, recalled. And some of them uh, were, again, not even really assessed for oral safety or approved for oral ingestion uh, by the FDA. Um, And again, one of the criticisms here by the industry is that, well, the FDA doesn't regulate cannabis, but it seems to regulate terpene. So there's two pieces that I'd like to dig in with you fine people. And that's, you know, relates to questions around who, what, where, when, why, and how. But there's also a second new development, and that is many companies involved in the recall have formed another company to sue the government over its recall. What is this company called? It's called exactly what you think a group like this would be called. It's called Medical Marijuana Access and Patient Safety Incorporated. They even have a website for Medical Marijuana Access and Patient Safety Incorporated. And they called the health department's reasoning nonsensical, uh, quote, unquote, given that the federal government considers cannabis an illegal substance with no accepted medical value. So since cannabis is illegal, why look to the FDA for safety about inhaled additives? Um, Does your head hurt yet? Mine does. So a lawsuit filed by Medical Marijuana Access and Patient Safety Incorporated 
which represents some of the biggest companies of the state, is pending in the Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania. So uh, Patrick Nightingale, an attorney in Pittsburgh and director of the cannabis advocacy group Pittsburgh Normal, uh, told reporters he's not aware of any incident that would call into question the safety of any vape cartridge products. Uh, He added that patients are now wondering if they've been using unsafe product. He also questioned whether there was some, quote, partisan fuckery at play. Um, And he went on to say, quote, does this foreshadow the DOH, the Department of Health, requiring additional product testing for other products? He wrote in an email to the C-Paper, Pennsylvania's medical marijuana products are quite expensive, he added, especially for a medical program. And he worries about any effect on costs that could potentially come out of this vape product review. Quote, license holders will necessarily incur additional expenses complying with this requirement that will then be passed on to the patient. And it will be expensive for license holders to change product lines at the drop of the hat. What's interesting is that the head of the DOH, along with others, are uh, retiring And the DOH announced it is now investigating price gouging practices of the companies and the Department of Health Medical Marijuana Program Director or former program director who's retiring, Dr. John Collins, called on the acting health secretary to investigate price gouging on medical cannabis products by permit holders. Um, And this does include some of the largest national brands like uh, the aforementioned Columbia Care, Cresco, Cureleaf, and Trueleaf in Pennsylvania. So again, Collins, Dr. Collins has announced his upcoming retirement. He presented some extraordinary evidence that is available online, um, data that rarely goes public. And what he compared was the monthly wholesale and retail prices for cannabis. And so um, there's been a 30% decrease in the wholesale price, while retail prices remain steady and costly. And what's fascinating about Pennsylvania is that Section 705, of their statute is, is the only statute in the country that allows regulators to impose price caps on medical cannabis products. So very interesting indeed. So, um, you know, this is believed to be the first medical marijuana recall in Pennsylvania. And it raises questions about why the state allowed these products to be sold in the first place. Um, and it exposes, um, you know, some contentions between the industry and experts. Um, you know, what's really interesting here is the DOH of Pennsylvania provided a list of unapproved additives, many of which, honestly, um, I didn't, didn't really sound like something I'd want to inhale. The additives I did recognize appear to be terpenes, many of which are naturally occurring in the cannabis plant and other plants. Um, but again, in an email to cannabis business owners from the Department of Health, the phrase additives was qualified as artificial terpenes or flavorings. Um, the DOH has said to emails to patients, quote, although some of these in, some of these added ingredients may be considered safe through other non-inhaled products, patient safety is a top priority of the medical marijuana program. Therefore, the department has issued a mandatory recall for all affected vaporizer products. Um, I was actually quoted in one of the articles and I actually praised, um, you know, the Department of Health, I, I also said that the lack of clarity in the regulations and how these products are approved allows people to exploit weaknesses in them. Um, you know, again, the, the, the law as it is written in, in, in Pennsylvania, to me, is designed for extracted products from the plant, not foreign agents added to make it taste like cherry lemonade or, or something like that. So, you know, as we've said on the show many times, there need to be guardrails for consumers because there's an explosion of new products. So, um, you know, one thing that does bother me is, um, 
there was this statement um, from a representative of the Pennsylvania Cannabis Industry Association um, that said, the state is trying to apply a standard that does not exist, which is not a great thing to hear from someone representing companies selling products that are potentially unsafe under existing standards. I mean, I don't exactly feel better about using products now that a representative of the industry has said that basically they don't need to prove they're safe for insulation as long as no record exists of someone getting seriously harmed. Nigam, let's start with a typical, you know, grade school science question. Um, talk to me about terpenes. Let's just start with a basic. How do the terpenes that naturally occur in cannabis affect consumers? Why does the industry add terpenes to vape cartridges? Uh, what is an artificial terpene? You can break off any one of those that you'd like. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to break them all off. So let's start with what is a terpene. So terpenes are these minor components of, of cannabis flower that often have a unique smell and or some other properties. Um, so there's very common ones, you know, myrcene, linalool, uh, terpenaline, so on and so forth. And uh, for folks who aren't familiar um, it's important to know that the majority of these terpenes are also in in nature in other places. Um, so, for example, pinene is in pine needles. It, it's as easy as it sounds, right? Now, uh, Jehan, I'm going to loop back to one of your questions. What is an artificial terpene? So I was thinking about this before the show, and, and I think we can put it in three buckets uh, in this context. So one is there are terpenes that come from the cannabis flower, uh, that, that occur naturally. And I think a, a big crux of this issue is even with these types of stories in the news and with, you know, shows like ours talking about it, I think a lot of consumers when they hear terpenes or where they think, see, there's a terpene on a certificate of analysis, they assume it's from cannabis because, the cannabis flower has terpenes in it, so they think if it's a vape card or if it's an edible, if it's a beverage, then that wait, wait, came from are you telling me safe. that there um, is not cannabis out there that tastes like cherry cola? So that's debatable. Uh, there's, a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of strains out there, but um, I did like your quote, by the way. I, I read the article; I, that that made me smile. Um, but back to, back to what I was saying is that um, so let's just say bucket one is terpenes that occur naturally in the cannabis flower at relatively low levels. Um, okay. So that's, that's great. Uh, now there are then terpenes that occur in other plants in, in industrial settings are purified from those other plants. So let's say a company wants to sell terpenes and they want, you know, a metric ton of, uh, terpenaline or limonene, they're not going to get that from cannabis. And even cannabis extractors, it's a rather inefficient process, and most of them aren't capturing those terpenes or purifying them from cannabis flower. Okay, so the third bucket would be uh, purely synthetics. So there's all kinds of products that are uh, created synthetically and, and studied for their safety before they go to consumers. Um, so that can be okay. So then the last two things I'll say is that in an optimal situation, uh, if you have a scientifically valid and ethical operators across the board, a molecule is a molecule. If the analytical chemist says, you know, the mass spec and the NMR is the same, then, you know, it should be the same. But in, in this instance, I think that the 
level that it's present at. And then also the fact that there's not a lot of hardcore analytical chemistry going on with these um, terpenes is at issue. Yeah. So I, I shared I, a lot of I, general knowledge there, Jehan. But uh, I, I think the just the, to wrap it up, um, yeah, so that's what a terpene is. And then the question in this circumstance is what terpenes are going in these consumer products at what level? Yep. And a- then what absolutely. do we know? About the I think effects, that right? at what level is great. You know, I, I first, when I first, you know, read this article, I was like, oh my gosh, I've been stopping to smell the flowers my whole life. I'm, I'm, am I going to get sick or something? But, you know, it depends on the amount of terpenes that are in products. Um, and so, you know, some people, you know, are concerned that is this just like the DOH with a knee jerk reaction to recall? But Anna, I wanted to go to you, you know, you do, you've done education and communication in the past. And, and I imagine that this isn't the first time that a product safety, you know, product safety has been questioned for cannabis. But is there any evidence in, in your opinion, good evidence that, that vape pens and, and these flavored vape cartridges have been unsafe in the past? Is, is there some history here? Do you think these products have a good track record? Should this be a shock to people that vape products were recalled in a state? Uh, I, I'm kind of a hater when it comes to vape pens. Um, as far as human health and safety and out of all the options to consume cannabis. And that is because even if a, a product maker sets out with good intentions, there are so many ways for that, that product to get contaminated from human error um, in the extraction process to contaminated, you know, to heavy metals leaching from the hardware, which comes from supply chains that are not well controlled. Um, it's basically all imported from China. And then, um, you know, uh, what, you know, what temperatures are these materials being heated to? And we know that terpenes, there was some good um, research coming out of Portland State University showing that terpenes are, uh, you know, become carcinogens at high levels. Um, probably not something, you know, a vape pen heat, but all that aside, I mean, there's just, there's so many ways to go wrong with this level of consumption. So, um, and that's before we even start talking about the additives, right? The thickeners, the thinners, the, the flavorings. Now, I believe that there is some research showing that certain flavoring agents for vape, um, vaping the, the nicotine side of things are, um, are known carcinogens. For example, there's that one that smells or tastes like buttered popcorn, apparently. Or maybe I'm just oh, thinking yeah. there's something that's known to cause like popcorn lung. And it's, you yeah, know, yeah, it's right? a, uh, absolutely. And so, I think it's the dye acyl. Um, oh. it's, it's a, it's a buttery flavory one. Yeah. There's a couple that are just yeah. simply, uh, yeah. And that I love that you brought up the popcorn lung thing. Cause there was a person who first that the popularized case was someone who was eating a lot of microwave popcorn, just love the smell of it. And eventually enough of the flavoring, I guess, pulling it right out of the microwave and, and huffing it, um, got into lungs and created a new disease. That's I mean, horrifying. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, so cannabis as a plant, I mean, say what you want about smoking irritates the lungs, whatever risks there are there. At least that's some, that's a traditional consumption method that's been happening for thousands of years. And we have a pretty good idea, you know, even though we don't have c- controlled clinical trials, we have a pretty good idea of what that does and doesn't do versus all of these new chemicals being shoehorned into these little cartridges 
combusted and inhaled this, you know, chemical mishmash. And for what? You don't want it to taste like the plant that you're using. You know, I, I just personally, I'm not a fan. And I do agree with you that I think consumers need guardrails because um, it can sound appealing if you don't know anything about how these products are made or, you know, the science behind it. And most people don't. So, you know, oh, it sounds great. Pink lemonade. Oh, it tastes fruity. It smells fruity. But then what is it doing to your body? You know, it's a dirty bomb in there, in my opinion. Again, such a I'm a I'm a total hater. Um, I'll just now, leave it at that, I guess. <laughs> I think I think it's good to be uh, critical, even cynical. Um, and, you know, I think or skeptical, um, you know, pick one. But I think you have to ask these questions in the day and age. I mean, it's not like like it's not like these products are screened in, um, you know, animals or in human lung cells and in vitro in vivo research, or are they even doing a, a literature review because I, I've looked up some of these compounds and just on, on the internet. And some of them are like, wow, a uh, Fenchone, which is, is like listed is, is in, maybe we'll talk about it later, but it's, it's listed in a toxic watch list. since like 1997. And, and I think it, it does scary to me when people use a single terpene as the excipient to dissolve the cannabis. And, I heard someone describe it in a great way. They called this um, flavored hot dog water was one way to describe some of these products. Um, and, and, you know, and Jackie, I want to ask you in a little bit about who should prove uh, the products are safe. But Nigam, I want to <laughs> go back to some shock value. Um, you know, what about this statement from Patrick Nightingale, who actually is, is someone I've, I've, when I lived in Philly, um, encountered many times. Um, and we, we know each other. And, um, you know, he questioned whether there was some partisan fuckery at play. Um, and I'm not going to say it again, but I'm just, where's the decorum? I, I don't get it. Do you get it? I mean, like, are these like Democrats and Republicans going at each other? Like, uh, can, can you help us out here? Like me and the listener just scratching our heads. Like what, what, what's, is this all politics or is there something else here? Like, I, I don't get it. Like, is this just, yeah. So, yeah, wow. Um, okay, so there's a lot of depth here, and and I'm I'm not in Pennsylvania. I'm I'm in San Francisco. So uh, let let me try though. Let me highlight some things that may be happening. One thing that I think is good about cannabis is that in some facets, especially recently, I feel like it ha- has really crossed party lines. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, if we can move past the puritanical side of things you know, cannabis makes jobs, it makes money, gets people off, you know, prescription drugs, so on and so forth. So we are seeing a lot of, you know, mutual interest. Um, so I don't know if it's in, like I said, I'm not in Pennsylvania. I don't know if it's, it's a party thing, but here's what I, a thing that I think it is. I think it's a money thing. I think it's a big business thing. I think it's a, uh, you know, ignorant cells until something <laughs> bad happens thing. So, uh, and, and I could, right. I could go on with the list, but especially, especially Jayhan, the thing you, uh, shared from the article about major players in the, in the Pennsylvania market literally formed an entity to sue the department of health over it. That, that really just screams to me that in the price gouging thing, those are things that, that say to me that it it's mostly, it's about the money and it's about their profitability and um, it's about, you know, mm. the shareholders being more important than the patients. And I, 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 I could ramble you. on, and but I think maybe we're, 
we we've left the era where it was partisan issues at play where uh, and maybe in states that don't have programs we still see that but in, in this day and age i mean it was republicans who supported the pennsylvania bill in the beginning so maybe the the democrats are at it again um but um you know i think it's just it, it is a little it feels a little disappointing and speaking of, of you know disappointing you know and i wanted to ask about the communication strategy here what i have shared um is of course not the it's, it's really hard to share the entire story of all the quotes and comments going around but you know if if you were in charge of a communication strategy or, or communication for, say, a dispensary or cannabis operator in a state like Pennsylvania going through an issue like this, you know, what would you do or what would you have done you know, if your company's products were questioned, like the safety of those products were brought into question? Would you turn around and say, safety standards don't exist for these? Um, you know, we're going to sue the Department of Health. Joking, joking. But, um, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but how might this have been better handled from a company health communication and education standpoint? Yeah, well, I think I think Nigam's point about profit motives um, muddying the waters is a real um, consideration in, in how people are realistically going to act because I think there's um, there's good reason to be not selling, if you own a dispensary, for example, not selling certain types of products or certain brands that you know are sketchy in the first place. Um, I mean, I actually was in a, a, you know, a situation not exactly like this, but similar. Do you remember um, when there were all the Evali um, deaths that were linked to uh, cannabis vaping? And that was right before COVID. So that really got lost in the shuffle. Nobody, everyone forgot, right? <laughs> because that it was this big c- concern and then COVID hit and then, oh, it's out of our memories. Yeah. But, you know, that was going on, probably still is going on. Um, with the, to your point, Anna, the, you're absolutely right. I read a report uh, yeah. from December about someone being hospitalized from a Delta 8 vape that actually mm-hmm. had vitamin E acetate in it. So right. Yeah. Still, and then again, we're not talking about a regulated product there. Just to be clear, that's an right. unregulated but, space. But sure. to your point, yeah, it's still yeah. going on. And so, and my, uh, when I really dug into that too, I was working for a farm at the time that um, collaborated with product makers. And so we had some of our, our cannabis that was turned into oil and available in vape cartridges, but we were very selective about who we'd work with and we would only make vape, vape cartridges that were 100% cannabis oil to our knowledge, right? And so we really had to examine those relationships, double check with everyone. Mm. Are you, you know, are you following what we asked and agreed on? And then, um, you know, and then the messaging around it was like, you know, there were people in the company who wanted to take the tactic, like everything's fine. Vaping cannabis oil, you know, there are no known problems. And I was like, I basically said what I just said earlier, you know, like, no, there's a lot of problems with this. It's not a, you know, it's not an ideal consumption method, especially for medical patients, I think, in my opinion. Um, I, you know, I just, and I'm not a doctor, I'm not a health professional, but in my personal opinion, right, as a cannabis absolutely. person. And I thought you made two, two really good points. One of which I absolutely love was if you're a company, um, you know, and you uh, put out a product, maybe check your supply line. Maybe maybe you're not even aware of what the producer is supplying to you. And then that um, that might be important thing to pass down the chain and to review. And 
you know, I think that that's really good. And maybe putting out material or information about the benefits and risks of this particular administration form. And so, you know, I, I too feel like the company's missed an opportunity here to work with the state and say, actually, here's how we know our products are safe. We have a toxicologist, we have a pharmacology advisor, and they did a safety report. And it's shocking to me that none of that documentation has come to light in months now, basically, since this this whole thing started. No, no rationale of why the companies added these products. So I know we have to go to the next story soon. But Jackie, I wanted to, you know, get your opinion because you're, you know, when you're not doing VR drug development and standing in the center of a receptor, showing people how drugs work, you're you're looking at clinical studies, you're you're looking at, the, you know, it seems to me that Silera is trying to go through this federal pipeline for a product. So I want to ask you this. When you read stuff of this, do you ever think, gosh, I'm confused. Who should prove that products are safe? Is it the government's job? Should, should the government be proving that the products that companies are making are safe and verifying their label claims? Or is it the job of the companies making the products who might be as, as you know, people do push things to the absolute limit of their interpretation and and distribute products for human consumption so you know um yeah i guess that's my question who should prove whose responsibility is it to prove products are are safe for example cannabis products should there should there be an additional burden put on you know your local department of health to run your clinical study for you um should there be like a separate branch of like you know some crime scene investigators who like get cannabis right <laughs> they go to a chalk outline find a joint and they like go oh, then take let's take this to the lab run it through some animal studies yeah I, so i guess i just would like to put it into perspective a little bit because i think it the answer to that kind of just is very obvious when you start to look at what government does testing on right now they really do are testing on things that are considered um like water right things that it's like if you don't have water for four days you'll die so it's, it's, you know, th- those are the types of situations that right now, sure, they have all this water testing, they do a lot of other, you know, analytical testing on a lot of things that are considered sort of the everyday necessities for all humans equally. And I can, I can see that from a government perspective, when it comes to a product that is still federally illegal, and is something that is completely different state by state, and are claiming a medical claim, I think that those companies should have to go through the paths that are put into place for a medical product. And and none of them currently really do that, right? None of them are going through FDA approval for any of these products. And I think that when you look at companies that are going through the FDA, we have to upfront all of that cost for toxicology studies. We have to do everything we can to prove from what we know today that that is not going to harm patients and it's not going to harm people. And it's specifically because we're putting a medical claim on it. If you want to claim it's recreational, then that's a completely different beast because then the person is kind of taking into their own hands their own risk. But when you're trying to say that a medical doctor can prescribe this or make it something medical, it's a very different product. And so I, I think I'm actually in, in Anna's boat. I'm a pretty big hater for most vape products. Um, I think if for anybody who does do FDA product development, you know that inhalation is one of the hardest ones to get because it's just impossible to prove that you don't really have... Um, anything in there that's going to harm the lungs because the lungs are just so sensitive. And uh, yeah, you have to be very careful with inhalation products. So 
that's, I guess, my, my spiel. Yeah, I guess uh, if you can't breathe, uh, not much else matters, right? Um, <laughs> right. Uh, so to, to kind of wrap up this subject um, or this topic, you know, I'm going to talk just... So if you go to this list that um, known additives contained in, in these cannabis products, it's, it's a PDF available on the Pennsylvania's website. It's really kind of wild. It has these categories, like how they looked at it. Just three categories, really simple. Um and here are two compounds from the list. Um, one is Fenchone, which I found a document that's been on a toxic watch list since 1997. And that is, again, in concentrations that when it's like, you know, you don't want to be breathing a lot of these impure. Another one that caught my eye that I really didn't recognize. And I got to say, some of these I read like Hexanol is like, oh my God, what the hell is that? And then I go and look it up. It's like, oh, it's a common perfumery agent in very, very small amounts. So I'm like, okay, that has a history of use for decades. Um, you know, um, and, and Fenchon's been around since the 1930s, and its safety has been called into question for a long time. So that's a head scratcher for me why you would see that in products. Another one was methyl cinnamate. And, and I have a knee jerk reaction to inhaling anything that's cinnamon based into the lungs because of some of the information on there. And it sounds like that. And I looked it up, and it had, you know, moderate toxicity by ingestion. I mean, the LD50 for rats was, you know, 2,600 milligrams per kilogram. So, you know, you only have a 50% chance of dying if you consume a lot of it. Um, but it is a combustible as a liquid. And when heated, it emits acrid smoke and irritating fumes, according to uh, toxicology documents online. So sarcastically, this sounds like a great way to induce an adverse event in a vulnerable population, such as a medical cannabis population. Um, so I guess I'm just kind of like, I guess when you, when you read this list and you look up these compounds individually, and again, I spent... 30 seconds looking up these compounds. I guess, one, I'm surprised there hasn't been more media coverage on this, but um, just throw it to the group real quick. Do you think this is something that could gain momentum in other states? Do you think that regulators might be like, you know what? What the hell did we just approve in our state? Like, let's, let's take a look at these products. Oh my gosh. Like, we didn't know you were putting these we didn't re, we were taking you at your word that you were serving a community that had vulnerabilities um you know do you think i don't know you know nigam anna or jackie do you think this type of activity could catch on in other states where product safety is calling the question i mean Anna, i see your head nodding yeah i mean this already has happened to an extent in oregon where the regulators changed the law so that they banned um additives to cannabis, um, vaporizer, you know, inhalation, mm. vaporizing, um, they banned non-cannabis derived and they defined that. So it, it couldn't be like, oh, this is humulene. It's found in cannabis, but we just put huge concentrations that we got from this other source. Um, so, and they defined it carefully and they just made it so it had to be labeled. Um, but you couldn't add thickeners or thinners, but you could add, you know, these flavorings, but label it. And then there is this uh, company, a large, large company that's uh, with a very colorful history in Oregon um, that was purchased by a multi-state operator uh, relatively recently. And they were found to have knowingly, uh, I mean, they, they didn't follow it, basically. They had these other additives that weren't approved that were in their products that were on the shelves. And they ended up only paying like... That the fine they got was really small for it. So a lot of people were pretty upset about that, especially because it was that company which has a history of um, mi misdeeds, you could say, in the cannabis industry. But 
but there yeah, is a movement. I, I, People are paying attention. Absolutely. And I, and I don't think that outright bans are on, on these things, you know, we don't want to limit innovation in the space, but we do want to balance that with safety, public health, um, and, and shared responsibility for these products. And, um, you know, I think, again, the con- if you don't know what level they are safe at, maybe you shouldn't put them in at any level in the products. So we're all going to take a deep breath and come back with our science article. I'm David Valancourt, founder and CEO of the GMP Collective. We educate and provide best practice standardization across the emerging cannabis and life science industries. By working in a collaborative manner, our clients realize unrivaled product quality and the ability to sustainably grow their business through compliance and operational efficiencies. Find us online at gmpcollective.com or shoot us an email at info at gmpcollective.com. Enjoy the show. And we're back. Welcome to the portion of the show where we go over peer-reviewed research. And today we're going to discuss an article from the Journal of Psychopharmacology, which recently published a study on the differences among psychedelic substances regarding their subjective experience by looking at posts on a website called Airwood. Uh, the drug experiences that are shared anonymously on this website are increasingly being considered as clinically and scientifically relevant, not just interesting. So we'll give an overview and then we'll break it down. Of course, if if um, something we say is important, um, it'll be repeated many times. So don't worry, listener, if you hear some strange words. Um, if it is important, we will repeat it many times. So diving in. One tool that, that researchers have to study subjective experiences of psychedelics um, is with what's called quantitative linguistic analysis. It's a powerful tool to examine differences between drug experiences. And from what I understand of this type of analysis, it's also part of natural language processing methods, which use artificial intelligence or AI to look at the meaning of, of these reports. So someone uses ayahuasca, DMT, or psilocybin, perhaps a combination of them, and and then writes about it online. So again, you combine AI, language processing methods with the internet. This can be a valuable source of information. So the study by Hayes and colleagues compared five psychedelic substances reporting um, and a non-psychedelic group. They actually use antidepressants. um, And they use these different linguistic markers of psychological states and processes. Um, they looked at almost 3,000 publicly available reports on Arrowhead. They compared ayahuasca, DMT, LSD, MDMA, uh, psilocybin, and antidepressant drug experiences. They looked at things like word frequencies uh, related to various psychological states, like cognitive thinking or negative emotions, um, as well as mystical experiences. And they looked at these different scales. I um, mean, they found some interesting trends, like they found distinct effects on MDMA and emotionally intensifying profiles um, accompanied by many cognitive processing words, dynamic personal language. In contrast to MDMA, ayahuasca, and DMT experiences, um, these reports involve relatively little emotional language, a few cognitive process words, but increased analytical thinking associated type language. 
Um, you know, and, and you know, for antidepressants, the quote unquote control group, this featured more negative emotional and cognitive processing related words and fewer positive emotional, fewer analytical thinking words. Again, um, you know, this study examined differences in, in linguistic markers of psychological function between different psychological drug experience reports uh, posted anonymously online. And, you know, the, these differences indicated certain psychological effect profiles. Um, which is interesting for these different substances. And although we need more controlled studies um, to examine these and, and replicate these, this study indicates that drugs may have sort of different emotional profiles associated with them, different um, ways to characterize these experiences. So, Jackie, I want to jump to you um, and, and discuss, um, you know, these scales. And they use, they use a lot of scales in this report, a lot of figures, a lot of cool charts, but they use this Hood M scale and this OAV scale. And I'm wondering if you could shed some light on, on how these are used typically in the psychedelic field or, or what are they? I mean, I know the, the Hood M scale measures mystical experiences. Um, could, could you could you help me <laughs> understand this a little bit? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm actually probably a, a terrible person to ask this question to. And I only say that as coming from like the chemist and drug development perspective. Um, we have, I mean, they do, they try to, I guess really what I get out of it is that it's the best attempt at trying to understand what an individual is going through from both a emotional and personal and experiential perspective. And it's extremely difficult if you're not inside that person's mind while they're going through this experience to really know how to assess the outcome. And right, a lot of these things are very quantitative and in trying to then quantitate something that is inherently very qualitative is extremely difficult. And so at least from my understanding, that's what some of these scales are introduced as is how can we really quantify what some of these experiences are while still keeping a qualitative aspect to some of those values. And that's really um, what I get from this study when I see that. Absolutely. And, and so, Jackie, just continuing on, on that thread, because I know you're, you're a chemist, but, you know, I wanted to turn, and this is, we'll open it up to the group after this, but I want to turn to table one from this study, uh, which shows a descriptive use of these substances. And what this table one shows um, you know, is the drug, and then all these administration routes, oral, insufflation, rectal, vaporized, IV, IM, um, and it looks at it for ketamine, LSD, and MDMA. And I, I guess, you know, one of my questions here is, one is, um, is this type of information useful and in how people administer these substances? And then the second one is, you know, I assume as a chemist, um, you look at things like solubility and, and you know, for example, ketamine, people just put it about anywhere they could. Um, seems like every possible administration form is listed <laughs> for ketamine. Hey, put it wherever. Um, <laughs> and psilocybin has like only two routes of administration reported. And and I'm, am I just not cool enough to get it? Like, why would someone want to do all these things with ketamine? Um, why would they administer it rectally but not psilocybin? Why would they, you know... <laughs> um, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we, I, I can say, so I think a lot of times when you first start to see this data, there's a lot of people out there who will assume, oh, this is just sort of anecdotal. This is just kind of random data from random places. And, and it's hard to even know what's standardized. But I, I actually take a very different 
perspective when it comes to this data, because we had a few decades with a lot of the psychedelic compounds of just sort of absence in real research and drug development. And so when you're talking about people around the world that were willing to basically be the guinea pigs for decades on some of these substances and tell you about their experiences, it's actually an extremely good starting point for a company that is trying to now assess, well, what indication do I want this to be for? Do I want this to be for depression, anxiety, PTSD? All of these things, they might have comorbidities where they, they can both happen in the same patients, but there are some distinct differences amongst them in how patients are affected, what types of outcomes you'd like to look for. And I would think that these sorts of studies are really the best starting point you could ask for, because at least you're now seeing, okay, so when you mentioned ketamine kind of just being in all these different types of administrations, that's likely because of what you mentioned with solubility and a lot of these sort of, it's easily put into these other, and it's more accessible. So now we can start to play around with it and see what happens. Um, whereas you have something like DMT, where you could eat up to a gram of it and probably feel nothing because your body's just going to ruin it before it gets there. And so it actually gives you a lot of insight into the bioavailability, what happens in the patients and what happens to people. And you can really use that at least as a starting point. It's obviously not going to be, well, here, let me take this and go to the FDA now. But <laughs> it's at least something to get you started, especially when you have yeah, scientists and other people and medical doctors and everyone trying to bring their heads together to say, well, what's the best place for this compound and this formulation? And, and how do we make more patient-friendly methods? Because you know, IV is, is one of the options right now for DMT, and that's just... wow. It's not good enough, in my opinion. <laughs> and when you say not good enough... Um, Meaning for patients to, to want to sit in a room with an IV in their arm for an hour and go under a psychedelic experience. I think that we can do better in the 21st century to create more options and yeah. be able to... Yeah, I wouldn't say a, a clinical office Jackie, one, strikes me as the most um, favorable environment for a you know a, a altered cognitive state. Um, Right. Yeah. I don't see patch on that. There's no topical stuff here, but I guess they just don't There's have. Not, um, yeah. Topical's yeah. tough. It's a pretty niche area. So yeah, that's that's one of the reasons that we really are trying to push it is because it's also uh, we're big on abuse potential. It, the, what better ways to try to you know limit abuse than maybe not giving a patient thirty pills in a bottle at once. Or, so yeah. if we can try to maybe do something like a patch that lasts three days and then you only get so many of them, you don't get a lot at once. And um, it's just it's just more options. That's, I guess, why I say sort of not good enough is, is it's the 21st century. I think we can be more clever. But Jackie. And using things like this. <laughs> the question <laughs> is, would somebody then try out that patch in their rectum? Because I was very surprised by how many, almost every, <laughs> every substance people we're reporting that yeah. somebody has was trying it rectally, even ones that you wouldn't think. The antidepressants, there was somebody who said they, I, I'm just I like, did see that. I was like, what just, is that? It's so much more bioavailable from that administrative route that if you, you need a lot less to get more effect. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's similar mm -hmm. to when you, I don't know, I don't need to necessarily reference, um, 
some of the old school, like 90s and early 2000s shows of people with alcohol and other mm-hmm. things, you know, doing silly things. But it was, it, there's a reason it's because it, it just kind of goes straight to your bloodstream and it's, it's a really efficient route. So do you think it could be good? This data also is from... It, so there are groups looking into, I don't know about with psychedelics. I know with yeah. cannabis specifically, there were lots of groups looking into suppositories sure. as well as sort of the, the vaginal equivalents and, and really trying to assess um, how that could uh, change with bioavailability. I mean, it it's great if you can make it so that your body, so when I say bioavailability, right, just your body absorbing the drug. If you can increase the amount your body absorbs, then there's less being wasted. Mm. And then you also, there's less that your body has to process. So you have to think about your liver and kidneys and other things that have to process all of these things. So it sounds like it's, it's definitely a doable route. Yeah. It sounds like you'd probably want a very purified and safe product if you're going to yes, bypass absolutely. your filtration system <laughs> in your body. A hundred percent. Thank you, Jay. That's fascinating information and um it definitely is almost overwhelming i think to look at that list and just things i never thought about like wow people are smoking psilocybin mushrooms like that it's never even occurred to me um so you know it's it's people are creative i i think is one of the lessons here and we can use that creativity to understand the directions that substances could take and um you know, Nigam, I want to ask you my favorite question about studies in a second, but Anna, you know, you brought, you, you were talking about administration forms and, and I kind of want to get you said, you know, you've, 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 you're an athlete, you've competed, you've, you've done international stuff. Um, is there a, like, I'm just to talk about athletes. Is there a f- administration form? Like, you know, you, people talk about using psychedelics for whether it's therapy from, from the trauma of sports, um, from, you know, some of the violence aspects of that to wanting to perform better, whether cognitively. And there's definitely been where, um, you know, people could use these things to enhance their, their visualization practices. But I guess I just wanted to ask just kind of your gut feeling, is there an administration form that would appeal most to athletes? Do they want to like drink it in a protein shake? Are they like, nah, shoot it up in my arm? Cause I'd imagine like if I was, a pro athlete, I wouldn't want anything injected in my shoulder because if I had shoulder pain, that would not be good. And then, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking kind of along those lines, but, you know, if you were designing a, a therapy for athletes, what do you think? I mean, is it oral administration or? Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting question. I think athletes honestly are very tolerant to like anything that's going to improve their performance, they'll do whatever it takes. So we do terrible things like taking ice baths or, you know, like, (laughs) like we put ourselves through a lot. And so, I mean, I think people would accept something if they felt like it was going to help. But um, as far as what's most appealing, that's a harder question. I think, I think whatever's the least disruptive. So like you said, like, you know, no, maybe no pains or um, I think digestively, like, it seems, oh, drinking something's easy, but if it upsets your stomach or if you have to time it really, you know, with your workouts, that might be harder. So honestly, maybe something like a like a sublingual um, or, you know, something very non-invasive and mm. simple and, and not time-consuming. You know, you don't have to sit there with an IV or something. So, you know, so the more effective, um, probably like any other consumer, but but more so, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would say it's more so because because some consumers like 
you know, if they eat something that upsets their stomach, they just sit at home. They're not they're not highly active people. Um, the, the average American, right? We have obesity epidemic in this country. So, but for those people who are highly active, yeah, you don't want something that you know will limit your ability to move. I guess. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting point, and I'd love to, you know, that would be an interesting dimension for this study. And I want to I want to come back in a second Anna, and ask you. Um, about some associations with sports and, and psychedelics, because I have some some crazy Marku hypotheses around this. Um, but Nigam, I want to ask you my favorite question to ask you about studies, and that is the numbers. Let's talk numbers with Dr. Aurora. What about these end numbers? Um, was this a good good chunk of people, in your opinion? I know you're, you're usually like, God, they looked at five people. Get out of here with this research. But um, I want to get your 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 off the hip assessment here. So, so I'll say a good thing and a bad thing. So the good thing is that the end number for total number is two thousand nine hundred and forty seven. So that's that's a, a decent amount. Now, the the potential problems are that that split over, you know, multiple substance types. And when we're talking about antidepressants, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of antidepressants. So, um, you know, I'll just rattle some off. So for antidepressants of various types, 201, ayahuasca and DMT. Um, oh, actually, sorry, that was not the total. But basically, it's several hundred. It's between 100 and, and maybe, I guess for mushrooms, it's 1,000. So it's between 100 and 1,000 reported cases per substance so for example you know thousand reported cases that's not bad hundred eh, that, that's a little that, that's less great but the problem that i that i really want to bring up is that for folks who aren't familiar with arrowhead arrowhead is a great resource and jahan that's what you had mentioned in the introduction um that there people are seeing now the value from this kind of crowdsourced anecdotal self-reported information especially that has been compiled over years and years and years of just candid reporting by consumers. So I agree with that on a certain level, but then um, there's also obvious issues with that, which, you know, I won't detail at this point, but with the words I said, like self-reported and, and, you know, internet and all this that, that can, that can be, you know, perceived pretty obviously by the listener. So while I do like this data, while it is interesting, um, it, it's not by no means, is it a gold standard by no means? Is it clinical data or is it preclinical data collected by a, you know, a fundamental researcher? So, um, I, I think that there is value. Um, we've already discussed some of like the, the interesting things, like when Jackie was talking about the administration forms, I, I think that brings value, but I think it needs to be taken with a, a big grain of salt. Uh, when, you know, considering something that's going to happen in uh, the clinic or if some conclusion was going to be drawn, uh, you know, it should be double and triple checked, not just told, just run with from data from error. I, I agree. And, and, and to that, um, to running with the data, Nigam, was there something that surprised you about this study? I mean, was there a drug in an administration form that grabbed your attention? Um, you know, I mean, yeah. You, you know, yeah, there, there, there were a couple things. The I'll just say a top line because I know we're getting a little low on HLI time. Um, 
One thing that I thought was interesting is that they said, if we were to say just the highest level conclusion, they said that for um, on the scales that they did, they were basically looking at the words people used and how are they, you know, what are their feelings about these different substances? So for antidepressants, it was more negative. I don't think that's surprising anyone. Uh, for ayahuasca and DMT, or excuse me, excuse me, for MDMA, it was more positive. Um, and, and that's the whole thing about MDMA and increasing empathy and all this. So I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. But the thing that I thought was surprising was that they put ketamine, LSD, and psilocybin mushrooms in one bucket based on their analyses of the words people used to to describe them, their feelings about them. And I think that's, that's something too. I, I was talking about the Arrowhead data. Maybe I should be talking about this analysis method and what it's worth, because I think if you're putting, you know, ketamine and LSD and mushrooms in the same bucket in your study, there's something missing from how you're approaching it. Um, I think experienced folks often speak to, the differentials between the experience with LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, which were both traditional, you know, 5-H2 or 5-HT2A affecting psychedelics. And then just to throw ketamine in there, which is a totally different thing. Um, I think that was a little bit, it, it just, it just speaks to the need for further analysis or, or, you know, a bigger grain of salt for when you're looking at this data. Yeah, absolutely. And and there has been some previous research out there that they've um, from surveying and looking at this for something like psilocybin and PTSD, something very very specific uh, that they can predict. Um, you know, during the integration sessions, to some degree, how people will respond and what they'll talk about. So that for very narrow, it doesn't mean like. It's, it's figured out for everything under the sun, but for at least for one thing, there is a little bit of, of information here um, that they base it on. But um, just, to, just to change gears a little bit, and then I'll ask just one or two more questions. But And I wanted to ask, what psychedelics, um, in your opinion, seem to be associated with different pro sports? If, if anything that you can comment on, like, because I know you've, you've, again, you've traveled the world, you've competed in different areas, you've met other athletes, definitely with your work at... at um, athletes for care so um you know like for example um there's a there's a, the legend of the, the the baseball player on lsd who who pitched a great game when he like went for a picnic and forgot he had to pitch a pro baseball game um and i thought that may, maybe wrestlers and, and jujitsu practitioners like mdma because they like touching everyone and they get that big oxytocin release so maybe they're like that's their favorite drug because they're i mean Come on, if you if you're going to be doing catch wrestling or submission wrestling or something, you have to like to touch people. I mean, it's just it's like right. Um, so I just didn't know if there was um. In, again, you know, I'm not asking uh for you to represent the entire sports industry, <laughs> but um, yeah, is is there some association here? Like, do I mean I I know that basketball players seem to enjoy consuming cannabis. I, I know it's not a classical psychedelic, but um, <laughs> have you noticed any trends? I I will say, you know, um, when I was, uh, spending time around some players who all played for a particular national team of a country, oh, I'm talking about my sport rugby. 
um, they played for a particular national team and, you know, very good team. So they're high level athletes and they would do MDMA frequently um, instead of drinking. And so because they felt it was less harmful to their bodies, they thought it was still, or what they thought was MDMA. Also, you have to put that out there of like, are people getting the actual molecule they think they're getting when they're buying street drugs? Um, But I was um, surprised to encounter that um, sort of what seemed to me to be like a bit of a widespread attitude of like, I thought it was in one sense pretty progressive to, to recognize like, the harms of alcohol overconsumption um, and even regular consumption when you're an athlete on your body. But then I was like, really? Like you guys think that those are, you know, that's a less, um, that's a healthier substitution for you guys. I was, you know, I was surprised by that at the time. Um, So, you know, and I know, some people say, well, is, you know, MDMA gets put in the psychedelics bucket and other people are like, no, don't put it there. But, you know, it does get put in there. So, and it's in this study. Um, so that's one that I could say, um, people looking to replace, uh, you know, sort of that social going out experience with something else that will be an altered state that they will have, um, fun and be pleasant, you know, pleasant experience, but it's not leaving, um, for them anyway, what they reported to be a lasting, uh, effect, you know, but as far as like, actually, um, competing on something. I, I don't really know anything about that. It's more about like the yeah. off times, I think, and either replacing Absolutely. or, or like you said, like visu- visualization could be like a great technique. And I think a lot of psychedelics could, you know, theoretically be really great for that. And we do see more athletes now that are talking about psychedelics, you know, including me um, and the, the potential benefits they can have for athletes. Um, but, but usually not while competing. I really need to watch that documentary. It's been highly recommended to me so many times. And, uh, um, you know, I'm interested. I'm fascinated. Interesting. Yeah, no, and I really appreciate that. And, you know, just, just to, to, to wrap up that a little bit, um, you know, are there certain things maybe they should have, you would like to have seen them look at, you know, cause, cause you're talking about, um, you know, visualization and and i guess um are there certain lifestyle things that maybe would have been great to say hey ai hey robot buddy uh why don't you um scan for terms related to x or y are there some other terms you might want to you know i guess i guess if you could ask a question here or, or or have added a question for the ai to screen from these reports you know, what, what sort of other factors would you look on beyond mood and mystical feelings and cognitive thinking? Is there, I mean, yes. you know, sky's the limit here. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd be really interested to hear about if there was a, a significance in people's self-reported levels of physical pain. Um, this was all about emotional experiences, which, you know, can be painful as well or, or joyous. But, um, you know, psychedelics do have potential applications in changing our perceptions and our subsequent experience of physical pain, chronic pain even. So um, I'd be interested in that. I wish, you know, and for athletes, that's highly relevant too. If it, does it change your experience of pain? And if so, is it in a transient way or is it in a lasting way? You know, um, 
that would be absolutely yeah. that that is a fascinating question and too because because maybe it's they're just aware of the pain and they can work around it better or maybe it, it really is like a you know because there's lots of crazy things the body does like phantom limb pain and you can you know you might have had surgery and it's just like the trauma of the pain from the surgery still uh-huh. there's so there's all this um, all these things there that go into pain. Pain is a very complex thing. It can be a very yeah. psychological thing too. Yes. So that, UCSD I, is actually doing a study with psilocybin and phantom limb pain right now. Uh, fascinating. With, yes. Oh, with, with, uh, yeah. So that's, you know, I'm super excited to see when that comes out. Oh. We are too at, here at <laughs> HLI. And so I'm going to throw out one last question to the group. Um, you can jump in here, but what, changes um you know and i guess in the group would you expect there to be to like shift categories here um so you know um when i'm looking at uh some of the data you know i hear i see look at the mysticism scale and i see you know um you know psilocybin looks kind of low on it um or about the same level as like lsd ayahuasca and dmt seem to have a higher rating um you know uh let's like you know, if we look at like the analytical thinking, you know, um, uh, you know, ayahuasca and DMT, you know, they're, they're a little bit higher in the category as well as psilocybin, um, you know, uh, and I'm wondering like, like negative emotional thoughts, like, yeah, antidepressants are kind of associated with those negative emotion words, at least using those when writing about your experience. Um, so I'm guessing like, you know, if someone was taken opioids or co-administering these substances do you think that would change these or do you do you think like this is a good roll of the dice for the data like okay yeah this has come out this is or you know is there a question like you might have like gosh um if people were co-using it with cannabis i would expect you know some of the mysticism scores to go up i mean let's start there would you guys uh agree let's say if um i'll ask first question if let's say uh, you added cannabis as a baseline for use, co-use with all these substances, would you expect the trends to be different or the same? Oh man, that's so hard to say. Um, especially because, you know, we have antidepressants in here. Um, I think with the traditional psychedelics, um, probably, uh, mysticism would go up. I think it's likely a, um, additive or even compounding effect, uh, with the others. It's hard to say. I think it's interesting, your general question about co-administration, like with opiates and stuff like that. Um, You know, we are talking about people trying to get off opiates. We're talking about athletes that have issues with pain. We're talking about all this. Um, Even, you know, something they didn't discuss, or at least I didn't catch it in the article, is it's known that antidepressants can have a a large impact on if these traditional psychedelics even function the same way in people's systems. So I think broadly it's, it's a really great question, but I think it's too variable for me to say, you know, put Absolutely, my line in the sand I, I, on this I, or that. I smell what you're cooking there. You're saying, I think there probably would be changes. It's hard to tell what direction they would go. Um, let me throw another one. Um, yeah. Let's just speak generally. So when you look at these scores, you can consider improvements or not improved. So do you think um, outcome data would be improved if 
all these substances were used with alcohol. Do you think that would improve scores or maybe we'd call that not improved scores? Uh, I think, I think uh, less. I mean, overall, that's a very rough thing, but I think, uh, you know, some people put it as that alcohol lowers the vibration. Uh, I'm not sure how that would translate Mm. to the mystical scale, but uh, I know that it would definitely affect the Perfect. <laughs> so clearly, um, as research often does, it has left us with many more questions. And I think the, the frontier, which, what's great about this study is that it allows us to do something we can't do in clinical studies, which is compare side by side a bunch of substances. Like, there would be so awesome if we could have a multi-year study with these all these different groups using these different substances and doing assessments. But that's really expensive really difficult to get approval for. And, you know, imagine everyone trying to show up to the same one or two research sites to try all these substances and then the experts and the clinical oversight that would be needed. And so it's great. It provides us insight. But we still have this interesting issue with polypharmacy or polysubstance use. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is it is an issue that we need to think about um, because these are assuming, these reports are assuming um, people are just using the substance. It's not. It didn't seem to take into account, Nigam, as you said. Yeah, I didn't catch it either in the study. Nicotine co-use, alcohol co-use, cannabis co-use. Um, what else is being co-administered, or are they just you know drinking water? <laughs> um, and there's so many environmental questions. Um, what sort of environment are they taking this? Is it social? Is it semi-social? Do they? Um, and I think there's all these other factors that we would like to know. But as far as a initial pass. Um, I score this paper high on the Dr. Marku tolerability index, and I'd love to see more research out there on social media as health outcome research, and definitely for um, these types of investigations looking at self-reporting. All right, listener. Well, that's our show today. I'd like to thank um, those people who support our podcast and of course our very smart and talented guests really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to sit down and talk cannabis and psychedelics with us um, i'd like to thank our audio engineer as well as our cover artist please be sure to check out their website and their work 